sworn as I was sitting there that water was dripping on me from the air conditioner. At least it wasn't gold flakes. <laughs> Paul says in verse 12 of chapter 1 here, What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And then he'll say later, and in that, verse 18, I rejoice. So for cheerful Paul, and Paul was a cheerful, jolly man for sure, what tips him here into rejoicing is the realization that his arrest and his imprisonment is all part of God's plan. So he's able to rejoice. He understands that his imprisonment is resulting in God's glory. He understands that his imprisonment is serving to advance the gospel. Paul may be a captive in Rome, but while he is a captive in Rome, the gospel is being set free in Rome. And even because of his captivity. And Paul wants the Philippians and he wants us to, he says, know this. So read with me verse 12. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now that could use some explanation. How in the world does you being in jail serve to advance the gospel? Get a grip, Paul. Someone might say, it's over. God has he's used you mightily. To be sure, you ignited a fire in Europe through your itinerant preaching. Thousands at this point of Gentiles have come to know Christ. But Paul, it's over. Paul, you had a good and glorious run, but now you are chained up in a house awaiting execution. It's over. Let's just get in touch with reality, someone could say. But Paul says, no, really. He uses this word, no, really. What has happened to me is serving to advance the gospel. Well, that could use some explanation. How is it that you being imprisoned is advancing the gospel? So Paul, in verses 13 through 18, does just that. He explains how the gospel has advanced because of his imprisonment. Not that the gospel is advancing despite him being in prison, but that the gospel is advancing because he is in prison. And so then at the end of the paragraph in verse 18, cheerful Paul reveals that this realization has tipped him into Rejoicing. Look with me. 
Read verses 12 to 18 with me. Those two paragraphs in your Bible. But when I read it, we're going to collapse part of it. We're not going to read just yet. Look with me. Verses 13 through 18a. Which are, again, the explanation of verse 12. And we'll get to that. Let's just read right the beginning of these two paragraphs and the end of these two paragraphs, which is the result of all this, to really get the point. It sounds like this. Look with me at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now skip down to the end of verse 18 there. And in that I rejoice. So there you get the point of these two paragraphs, and then we'll fill it in. Let me read that again together. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And in that, my imprisonment, my captivity, the advancing of the gospel, in that, I rejoice. Now, when I read that, I wish I could rejoice in prison or in traffic (laughs) or in sickness or trial or in any trouble or loss. I wish I could rejoice when life frustrates me, when life bores me, when life scares me. When life concerns me, when life discourages me, when life threatens me. I want to rejoice like God wants me to rejoice. I want to rejoice like Paul could rejoice in any circumstance. And I wonder if some of you feel the same way. So what is Paul's secret? What book did he write? He wrote several. How was he able to rejoice no matter what? And here is what we are going to see. We're going to see this morning that Paul thinks differently. He he definitely doesn't think like the world. He may not even think like you. He thinks well. But he thinks very differently. Paul interprets life differently. He has a different pair of glasses on than virtually everyone else. Paul sees joy-threatening circumstances as joy-deepening circumstances. No one thinks like Paul. He sees everything as from a God who loves him. Everything, including prison. From God, and I know God loves me. And there's more. That good theology, because that's what all that is. He thinks differently. He sees differently because he knows good theology. He knows that everything is from a God who loves him. But that good theology, that good thinking enables Paul. And here's what we're going to see in the verses we haven't read yet. It enables Paul to look at 
his tragic circumstance and show you how it is for his good and God's glory. So think about it this way. It is one thing to know it. It is another thing to see it. It's one thing for a Christian to say, I know that God is using all this for my good and his glory. It's another thing for a Christian to say, I see how God is using this for my good and his glory. It's another thing for a Christian to not just say it and not just know it in their head, but to look their tragedy right in the face and to show others how God is being glorified in it. Wouldn't you love to be able to do that or to do that more? So I think we'll be helped today. Before I preach this sermon, we should pray together. Will you please bow your heads with me? Our Father in heaven, as we read your word today, would you enlarge our hearts for you? Would you enlighten our minds? And would you encourage our wills toward you? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you haven't already, please open your Bible to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, if you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on page 636. Paul has just finished opening up his letter to the church in Philippi with a formal greeting in verses 1 and 2, and then he has written out a prayer for them in verses 3 through 11. We've looked at that together, and now in our verses today, he seems to be responding to a concern that the Philippians have. And it, the reason that they have for concern is actually the reason that Paul has for rejoicing. So they're looking at it very differently. They're concerned about something, and Paul looks at that same something, and he is rejoicing in it. Verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me. So what has happened to Paul? What is Paul referring to here? Well, Paul's been arrested. And he is imprisoned in Rome. This will actually happen twice to Paul. This is the first time. He'll actually be released from this. He doesn't know that. You can read about this first imprisonment. It's how the book of Acts ends, Acts chapter 28. And during this imprisonment, Paul writes four letters. He writes the letter to the Ephesians and to the Galatians and to Philemon and, of course, the Philippians. The second time that Paul is arrested, he's going to be thrown into a hole. He's going to be put into solitary confinement, and then he will be executed by the wicked emperor Nero. But this time, he's, he's not in a hole. He's actually, and we get this from Acts 28, he is on a sort of house arrest. So they have him in a house. He's actually responsible to pay for it, but he cannot leave the home where he is living. And the entire time 
that he is in this home, he is around the clock, 24-7, he is chained to a Roman soldier. Or more specifically, he is chained to a member, we'll see, of the imperial guard. So think about this. Paul is no longer able to travel and preach, which has been his whole ministry, his very effective ministry. He's no longer able to do that. The gospel has advanced through Paul's preaching abroad more than the gospel has advanced through any other human being at this point. So this is a very big deal for it to now be illegal for him to go out and preach because he's not allowed to leave the confines of this home where he is chained to a Roman soldier. So you can understand the concern of the Philippians. Paul, you're not able to do what you have been doing. I mean, Paul, we wouldn't, the Philippians could say this, Paul, we would not be Christians if it wasn't for you out preaching the gospel, and now you're locked up. This looks to be the end of that. They're concerned they write him a letter. So that's what has happened to Paul. And what he says next is, to say the least, extraordinary. Here it is. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. You can imagine the Philippians reading that. Is that a misprint? From tradition, we know that the leaders of the church would receive a letter like this, and then they would gather up all the church members, and then they would read the letter aloud to them. Did Paul say advance? Did he say the gospel is making progress? Is this an exaggeration? Is Paul sober-minded? I mean, is Paul, is Paul out of touch? Is this just sort of some ridiculous, positive, mental attitude? Paul, it's time to get your things in order. Paul, your life is most likely coming to an end. You have had a good run, but Paul, it's over. So I love what Paul does next. I love what Paul does next. I am so thankful for what Paul does next because he explains himself. He he illustrates his point. Remember, Paul doesn't just know God is being glorified in this. Paul can see it. He can see how God is being glorified in what is happening to him. His theology is enabling him to see everything differently. And he's going to explain that to the Philippians. We collapsed this text at the beginning of the sermon. And Paul could have just done that and left out 13 through 18. Right? He could have just said, listen, trust me. Trust me, my imprisonment has served to advance the gospel, and in that I rejoice. Just trust me. But he doesn't just do that. He gives us six more verses explaining how. And it's extraordinary. 
how God is being glorified. Paul is not sustained here by some wishful slogan about God's sovereignty. That's not what he's doing. His optimism is not untethered from reality. He's not just in a hard time and reciting some Bible verse, just saying, well, God will be glorified in this. That's not all he's doing. He is sustained. He is made joyful by the reality of God's sovereignty over his circumstances. And he can show you what he means. And that's what we're after. I want to be able when I am in difficulty, of course, number one, I want to know. That God is sovereign. I want to know that God's going to be glorified. I want to know, Romans 8, 28, that he is working for my good. But listen, this is a whole other level. To know that so deeply that I can see it all over the place. It's not just some slogan. It's not just some untethered from reality thing that I say to get me through it. No, I can actually sit down with you. I can look you in the eyes. I can say, let me tell you about this tragedy. Let me show you what God did here and what God has done there and how he's been glorified here and how it's been for my good here. That's another level. It's the level Paul's on. And let's see it. So here's our question. How has Paul's imprisonment served to advance the gospel? And Paul here offers three gospel advancing results of his imprisonment. So these are three things that happened that would not have happened if Paul was not put in prison. I'll give them to you and then we'll look at them. Number one, Christ was proclaimed by Paul from prison. Number two, Christ was proclaimed by Paul's friends with greater boldness. Number three, Christ was proclaimed by Paul's enemies. So we'll look at those results one at a time. But before we do, hopefully you see what they have in common. Hopefully you heard what they have in common. It is the proclamation of Christ. Proclaimed by Paul, proclaimed by his friends, proclaimed by his enemies, Christ proclaimed. So the gospel advancing result of his imprisonment is the proclamation of Christ. That is it. That is a summary of verses 13 through 18. In fact, look down at verse 18. What does he say? Right before he says, I rejoice. Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. So that is the gospel advancing result of his imprisonment. And now what he does is he explains that Christ is being proclaimed, number one, by Paul from prison, number two, by his friends with greater boldness, and number three, even by Paul's enemies. And none of that proclamation of Christ would be happening if 
Paul was not in jail. So let's take them one at a time. Number one, Christ was proclaimed by Paul from prison. Let's read verse 12 and 13 where he says that. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Christ was proclaimed by Paul from prison. So who's Paul talking about here? Who, who are these people? Who is the whole imperial guard? Or some of your translations may say the whole praetorian guard. Well, this was a group of elite, hand-picked soldiers who worked and were assigned directly to the emperor himself. It's estimated there were between nine and 10,000 of them. So they were like the Navy SEALs of the day. These were the elite soldiers. That's who the imperial or the praetorian guard was. Now, for two years, we know that from Acts 28. That's how long Paul is in house arrest. For two years, that's roughly 730 days, not an hour passes. That's roughly 17,000 hours. So for roughly 17,000 hours, not one of those hours passes that Paul is not chained to one of the members of that imperial guard. I want you to think what Paul would do with 17,000 hours. The chain was like an extended handcuff. It was about 18 inches long. You can't get away from Paul. Paul would have been chained to that soldier 24-7 around the clock. They would rotate on shifts about four soldiers a day. So we can estimate that several dozen soldiers were chained to Paul over those two years. But that's several dozen. That's not, what did Paul say? That's not 10,000. But Paul said the whole imperial guard came to hear about Christ, which means that the word spread. Now, again, if you know Paul, that's not hard to imagine. The other members of the Imperial Guard would, would come to know about this extraordinary prisoner. That's exactly what happened. Word spread over those two years. Everyone knew who this prisoner was. The whole Imperial Guard had heard who Paul was. And more importantly, everyone came to know who Christ was. Because that's all Paul would talk about. The whole Imperial Guard came to know who Christ was. And then Paul says something massive here. Look with me. Every one of them came to know something specific. They came to know that his imprisonment was for Christ. That's what they came to know. Read verse 13 one more time with me. 
so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Or some of your translations may say imprisonment in Christ. This is big. This is big. And this gives insight into Paul's perspective over those two years. It's this. Paul does not see himself as a prisoner of Rome. And he never calls himself a prisoner of Rome. He sees himself as a prisoner of Christ. He's in Rome, but he's a prisoner for Christ. He's a prisoner of Christ. He's a prisoner in Christ. He does not credit the Romans for capturing him. He credits God for sending him. It's how he sees things. <laughs> Paul has spoken like this before. He'll do it again. In Ephesians, writing in the same house, in Ephesians 3, 1 and 4, 1, he calls himself a prisoner of Christ Jesus and a prisoner for the Lord. And then in Philemon, chapter 1, verse 9, also written from the same house, he says that he is a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Jesus. Here's what that means. Paul believes in the sovereignty of God. That's what that means. Paul believes in the sovereignty of God. Paul believes that God is in complete and total control and nothing happens that is outside his perfect counsel and will. Everything is within God's sovereignty. He is exhaustively sovereign. If you've been taught that God limits his sovereignty, Paul does not believe that. God is sovereign. So Paul knows that he is exactly where God wants him to be. I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of Christ. I'm here for Christ. He sent me here. He got me here. You guys had to find me and chain me up and bring me here. But he's ordained all of that. He's in control of all of that. And he's very careful in how he speaks about it. So he's telling all these guards, you know why I'm here, don't you? You know why I'm here, don't you? You know why I'm here, don't you? Do you know who Jesus is? 17,000 hours. I mean, he had to sleep. So maybe not 17,000, but many hours. This is all God's design. This is what he is reminding the Philippians of. And that is what the whole imperial guard is hearing. The Romans have not been the primary characters in getting Paul to Rome. God is the main character. Paul is there because God has led him there. Christ, he's there for Christ. He knows Christ has great purposes in Rome for Paul in prison. So what's he not going to do? He's not going to whine. He's not going to moan about it. He's not going to complain. He's not going to have an emotional meltdown. He's going to rejoice. He's going to rejoice. The gospel, Paul knows this, is not spreading despite Paul being in prison. The gospel is spreading because Paul is in prison. He knows the gospel will advance and he sees the gospel advancing. 
Who could have imagined? How would that be possible to, in, you, would you have a plan? How would it be possible to infiltrate the entire Praetorian Guard with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who could devise a better plan? There's actually more that resulted from Paul's preaching in prison. Look back at verse 13 again with me and see a little phrase, all the rest. Do you see that? All the rest. Let me read it in context. It, that's Christ. Christ has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. Well, who's all the rest? Don't you want to know? I want to know. There's more? That's a big deal, the whole imperial guard. And to all the rest. Well, remember, who do the imperial guards work for? They work for Nero. They work for the emperor. They're like his secret service. Now look with me at something. Look at the very end of the letter of Philippians. Go to the very end of the letter of Philippians in chapter 4. And look at verse 21 and 22. This is amazing. Chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The gospel has effectively infiltrated the emperor's household. There's Christians in the emperor's palace. Why? Because they arrested the wrong guy. <laughs> and that's one way to say it. I think that's the all the rest of chapter 13. Paul's imprisonment has resulted in members of the emperor's own household coming to faith in Christ. Um, again, who could have imagined? Hey, hey, maybe, Paul, if you can get yourself arrested, or maybe if you get arrested, they'll put you in house arrest. Maybe if they put you on house arrest for two years, and then maybe if they chain you to a member of the imperial guard 24-7 with like a short chain around the clock, then maybe you can share the gospel with those imperial guards. And then, I don't know, maybe the word will spread. And maybe those imperial guards will even dare tell members of the emperor's household, maybe they'll come to Christ. Maybe this is how we take Rome. Paul, let's hand you over, get you arrested. Just, (laughs) you can't come up with plans like these. His ways are higher than our ways. And so here the gospel has reached the very core of the Roman Empire. Just a side question. It's not the main point of this sermon. Who is chained to you? Who is God put in your quarters? Who do you share the gospel with? Day in and day out. Most of you, God has put people next to you over and over 
and over and over again. Do you make the most of those opportunities? Your spouse, your children, friends, your co-workers. Okay, that's one way the gospel has advanced because of Paul's imprisonment. If he had not been imprisoned, the whole imperial guard and members of the household of the emperor would not have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's pretty big, but it's not all. Number two, Christ was proclaimed by Paul's friends with greater boldness. Look at verse 14 with me. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. He goes on to describe these brothers in verses 15 and 16 and 18. And they preach from goodwill and out of love and in truth. These are Paul's friends, of course. They are affectionately called brothers in verse 14. They love Paul. We're told in verse 16, and they know what Paul knows, namely, look with me at verse 16, that God has put him in prison for a reason to preach the gospel. Paul says that they know that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, I imagine that these friends, these Christians, these brothers, they would be preaching the gospel, whether or not Paul was in prison. So it's not like Paul being in prison made them preach the gospel for the first time, and that's not what we're told, but they are made to preach differently. They're preaching differently now. We're told that they are speaking the word with much more, what does it say? Boldness. And what does it say? Without fear. And what accounts for that increased preaching confidence? Paul told us in verse 14. Most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord. How? By my imprisonment. It goes like this. If Paul can preach the gospel in there, we can preach the gospel out here. If Paul is willing to suffer for the gospel, we should be willing to suffer for the gospel. What is the worst that can happen? We thought the worst that could happen happened to Paul. And look how God has used it. Boldness in Christ is contagious. Some of you have experienced this. This is what's happening here. This boldness is getting transferred. If you're around a bold Christian, it's contagious. I was thinking this week about Jim Elliott. Remember Jim Elliott and his four friends who fearlessly took the gospel to the Alka Indians in Ecuador. They were murdered. Like Jim Elliott was 29 years old and his friends were close in age to him. We'd say they had their whole lives ahead of them. We'd say, what a waste. Imagine what they could have done if they, if they would have lived. Well, following their death, a bunch of other missionaries and their own wives went back to Ecuador and shared the gospel with boldness and fearlessly with those who had killed their friends and husbands. Something else happened in the 1950s and 60s after this. There was, for a great period of time, a surge of young people who dedicated their life to missionary work. Why? 
boldness in Christ is contagious. It spreads. I'll tell you one more story. You may have heard it in 1555. This is when she's known as Bloody Mary sat on the throne in England. She began a great persecution of Christians, and she had issued an order in 1555 to execute and burn two English reformers. Their names were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley for their faithful witness for Christ. So they had both these men tied up back to back to one stake. And as the flames began to burn these men's bodies, Latimer, these words are recorded for us, said, shouted actually to Ridley these words. Now think about what's happening to these men. Be of good comfort, Master Ridley. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And he was right. Their boldness for Christ, even in the moment of their death, caused the Reformation in England to outbreak like a wildfire. Men to this day find confidence reading stories like this. Some of you right now are sitting here thinking, I want to do something. I can, I can do this. Boldness in Christ is contagious. Alexander McLaren, he was a noted Scottish Baptist preacher in the 19th century. He said, a soul all on flame has power to kindle others. So it's another side question. It's not the main point of the sermon, but who are you igniting? Who is igniting you? Boldness in Christ is contagious. So Christ was proclaimed by Paul in prison. And now we see that Christ was proclaimed by Paul's friends with greater boldness. And that brings us to our third and final result. Number three. Christ was proclaimed by Paul's enemies. This is very interesting. Let's read verses 15 through 18. I'll point these men out to you, these enemies. Verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. There they are. But others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Here they are again. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in, here they are one last time, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. So who are these guys? They, verse 15, preach Christ from envy and rivalry. They, were told, proclaim Christ from selfish ambition. They, were told, they don't preach Christ sincerely. Rather, verse 17, their preaching is pretense. And verse 17b, through their preaching, they are actually thinking to afflict Paul, 
in his imprisonment. They're thinking to afflict him in his affliction. They are not friends, that's for sure. They are enemies. They are against Paul. They do not love Paul. They are not for Paul. We're told they were envious of Paul. Should probably be easy to be. They were envious of Paul. They wanted what Paul had. They wanted to be what Paul was. They were fellow preachers, which means they were colleagues of Paul, which is how envy springs up, right? Moms are envious of other moms, not other dads. Salesmen are envious of other salesmen, not pastors. And pastors and preachers are envious of other pastors and preachers. Paul is gifted. He is the most influential Christian on planet Earth. He has enjoyed some huge ministry successes, we could say. He had influence. Everywhere he went, the gospel spread. He had seen the risen Christ. He was the very last apostle. And it looks like even though he's in prison, he is still the Christian that everyone is talking about. So these preachers, they are not content with who they are. They are not content with what they have. And it's causing, Paul says, rivalry. It's causing division among Christians. You can imagine that. They don't get along with Paul's friends. Paul's friends don't get along with them. They may be in different assemblies, different local churches. Some are standing with these Roman preachers and others like the Philippians stand with Paul. So they are trying to out-preach Paul is what they're doing. They're trying to out-preach Paul. They're trying to get themselves in the spotlight. But did you catch this? They are preaching Christ. Isn't that curious? They are preaching Christ. These guys are lousy pastors, but they are preaching Christ. They are jerks, but they know Christ and can preach Him. Did you know that was possible? I mean, they are listened to these guys describe, but they are not heretics. These guys are not false teachers. If, if they were, right, Paul would not put up with them. Can you think of other letters that Paul has written? He calls out heretics. He calls out false teachers. Anybody who is not preaching Christ crucified, who is not preaching the Christ of the Bible, anybody, Paul calls them out, has no problem doing that. He does not call out the message of these men. In fact... They have the right message, but they have wrong motives. What is their motivation? It's Paul's imprisonment. That's actually motivating them to preach the gospel. This is their shot. They're envious of Paul. He's locked up. Think about this. Think about what Paul is saying. You talk about a glass half full optimism <laughs> like these guys that he's talking about and Paul is pointing out that 
they would not be preaching the way they're preaching if I was not in prison. I mean, my imprisonment, they feel like it's their shot now. They can get the spotlight. So they are preaching the gospel. And so Paul is not worried about it. I mean, he basically tells them, this is my best interpretation, relax. He tells them to relax. Christ is being preached. And he's not saying that because he's deluded. It's not because he's detached. It's not because he's stoic. He's got good theology. This is a man. I mean, how do you say that? This is a man who understands the sovereignty of God and can put those glasses on. And now he sees everything differently. It hurts me, but it's good for the gospel. So relax. Don't worry about it. Maybe if they let me out, these guys would back off the preaching accelerator. Don't want that. Let them preach. So there we have it. There are three gospel advancing results of Paul's imprisonment that he gives us. Number one, Christ was proclaimed by Paul from prison. Number two, Christ was proclaimed by Paul's friends with greater boldness. Number three, Christ was proclaimed by Paul's enemies. And therefore, even in prison, Paul rejoices. So again, Paul thinks differently, doesn't he? Paul interprets life differently. Paul sees joy-threatening circumstances as joy-deepening circumstances. He sees everything as from a God who loves him, and there's even more. That good theology, that good thinking, is enabling Paul to look at his tragic circumstance and show you and show me exactly how it is for his good and for the glory of God. It is one thing to know it. It is another thing to see it. Do you think like this? Do you see like this? Do you see the big picture? Are you able, when you are in the middle of it, whatever it is, the loss of the job, the unexpected diagnosis, the rebellious child, the unbelieving child, the angry spouse, the frustrating family situation, the tragedy. Are you able to zoom out and see the big picture and rejoice? Share a quick story with you. Some of you have heard this, but it illustrates this ability. Martin Luther was married to a woman named Katie Luther, which is a fascinating story in and of itself. He used to be a priest. She used to be a nun. I think he actually helped break her out of a nunnery so that he could marry her, if I remember the story correctly. It's an amazing story, and you should read about it. There's some books out there about it. 
But uh, Katie was a very helpful woman to Martin Luther, very strong woman. So as you can imagine, Martin Luther from time to time would have fits of discouragement and depression. I mean, at certain points in his life, he was being hunted to be killed. He was the one who ignited, 1517, the Reformation. So he was not well-liked. He was not well-loved by many in the world. He didn't see the fruit that we might see today, and so he had times where he would grow very discouraged. Get so discouraged, so depressed, that he'd just lock himself away and mope and mope. Give himself to self-pity, just thinking about how bad this is and how bad that is and how sad this is. So one day, here is how his wife, Katie, helped him. She dressed up in all black. She put on the clothes that she would put on if she were going with Martin to a funeral. She dressed in all black and she walked into his study. And he looked at her surprised. He said, my goodness, who has died? And she looked at him and said, God is dead. And he looked back at her and said, woman, do not talk like that. And she said, then do not act like that. (laughs) Exit. (laughs) Done. What did she help him do? She helped him zoom out. What are you doing, Martin? And, And he could list off a lot of reasons why he was discouraged and reasons why he was depressed. And I know personally speaking, they far outweighed any reasons I've ever had for being discouraged or depressed. He could rattle them off. And I'd probably feel sorry for him if he did. I might join in his self-pity. I wouldn't know how to encourage him. What did he need? He needed to zoom out and stop acting like God was dead. God is on the throne God is in control of all things. He is sovereign. Everything is a part of His good and glorious design. Paul knew that. And so prison did not get a hold of him. The Romans did not get a hold of him. God already had a hold of him. Do you think like that? Do you have people in your life who help you think like that? Do you you see life like that? Do you see the big picture? More pointed, can you see God's glory in trouble present and trouble past? That's that other level. I know you know it. And I know you can say it. I know you know Romans 8, 28 and that God is working for the good of those who love him. I'm so glad you know it and you believe it. I know you know Matthew 16 and, and God's going to build his church and nothing can overcome it. I know you know that. and I'm so glad you know that and believe that. Can you see it? Does it change the way you look at life? Can you see God's glory in the trouble you're in right now and the trouble you've been in? In the tragedy that you're in right now and the tragedy that you've been in? 
I have to. And I guarantee you, my wife has to right now just fight back, not thinking too hard about some of these things because we'll just lose it. We'll just lose it. I mean, the painting and the tapestry that, that looked so ugly, just honestly looked so ugly when it was being painted. It is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Now, one day, you're all going to see that painted picture. I promise you, because God promises you. And he's going to bring this work to completion. And you'll be glorified, and you'll see things as they really are. And you'll be filled with joy that you, you can't even imagine. That you can't even imagine. But can you today, can you, are, are you fighting today to see, to, to articulate, to show others the glory of God in your trouble present and your trouble past? We need to hear those things from you. The Philippians needed to hear those things from Paul. They didn't just need a slogan. They needed to see a godly man looking at life differently and showing others how God is being glorified. This is not wishful thinking, Paul was saying. I'll show you. I'll show you. There are people in the emperor's household who love Jesus today. The whole imperial guard has heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've got enemies out there that wouldn't be preaching the way they're preaching. We've got people dying for Christ that wouldn't be dying for Christ. And none of that would happen if it wasn't for this crummy plan. Do you think like this? Do you see like this? You won't unless you know Christ and know his word and follow him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, sometimes there are truths that we talk about that they are so good that it's almost impossible to talk about them. God, we are so thankful that the truth that the truth of your word is real, that the truth of your word is active, that it is doing things in our heart and soul, and that it's not worldly wisdom, that it's not wishful thinking, that it's not fleeting slogans, but it is reality. God, help us to take in the word that we've studied this morning. And I pray it would change us, young and old, and draw us to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.